Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the company's editor of the IC. Joining me is our digital editor, Graham Davies. Graham, how are you doing? I'm very well, Ian. Thank you. Just back from doing a marathon. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. What time did you manage? Three hours, nine minutes. Three hours, nine minutes in your first ever marathon, putting us all to shame. Yeah, very proud of that. We have another long distance running specialist in the control room today, Dominic Toms. How are you doing, Dom? Doing very well, thanks, Ian. What's your fastest marathon time? Uh... 2.59. 2.59. We've got a real strong running team. Also joining us is uh, Emma Powell, our financials correspondent. Emma, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. I've never run a marathon. Oh, you've stolen my question. I was asked what your fastest time is. Well, you've got it still to come. I did ride 100 miles, though, in a day last year, so... Not just for fun, as part of an actual competition. Yeah, yeah. Ride 100. Well, you know, perhaps a marathon's next for you. One of our listeners did ask me to say what the day is at the start of the podcast. So the the day we're recording this is Thursday, the 2nd of June. And it's a big day, Graham, for BHS. It is indeed, yes. Well, today should should be, although we've heard, you know, it's been a long-running saga, but today should be the day that uh, the identity of... Uh, any potential saviour for BHS is revealed if there is to be one, indeed. And we, yeah, we caveat that a bit because we don't know exactly. That's what everyone thinks that kind of should be. So hopefully by the time this podcast goes out, we'll, we'll know a little bit more about the future of BHS. And the reason I raise BHS is because another uh, fashion retailer, sadly, is going to close its doors mm. uh, this month. Uh, Austin Reed, which fell into an administration at the same kind of time as BHS. Yeah, it's quite strange because, you know, we're, we're in a, we've had a, a fairly long uh, economic recovery now and, and we're seeing still seeing these large uh, retail failures on, on, on the high street which suggests you know changing maybe trends in the way people shop um, or just that there are, there are these are individual potentially individual cases of, of you know not very well managed businesses it's uh, it's, 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 it's difficult it's, to say really yeah it's a difficult picture on the high street at the moment isn't it mm. as we've talked in previous podcasts that some businesses are still faring well yeah. Um, but yeah okay I think these guys have these guys maybe didn't uh, address the online challenge as well as others have done uh, Moss Boss is one that is it has reacted well online and and, and and the older the company the more likely they are to have a kind of cripplingly expensive pension scheme such as BHS so yeah there's specific, specific stuff to each each company but so, we, so today we should find out that the latest candidate for for uh, the saviour of BHS is a Portuguese group called Riches um, uh, oddly enough uh, fronted by a chap called Greg Tufnell who is the brother of uh, former England spin bowler Phil Tufnell. That's one of Emma's favourite cricketers. I only know about him from I'm a Celebrity. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Um, Um, Greg apparently um, used to be managing director at Mothercare, um, but that was 16 years ago. Okay, times have changed perhaps Mm. since then. Another thing that caught my eye uh, is in seven days is Weatherspoons, where the uh, founder Tim Martin uh, continues to have his say in the in the Brexit debate. And what's he done now, Graham? Um, he has printed or had printed two hundred thousand beer mats, which are going to be strewn around the hundreds of uh, JD Weatherspoons uh, pubs around the country, basically with various messages, Brexit supporting messages. And also outside his pubs, he has um, billboards advertising a leaflet that he's put together. If you actually go to the Weatherspoons website, there's a whole uh, EU um, section of the web uh, of the website, and it has many. It talks about um, supporters of Remain and Leave, um, and it had many different kind of headshots. And one of them is Tony Benn. So mm. you know, still having a say in, in the Brexit debate um, a couple of years after his death. But um, 
Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one here. Some companies have tried to stay out of the debate, but uh, Mr. Martin's very much kind of waded in, thinks it's very much in the com- com- uh, country's interest. If you read the stuff he said, he's very much kind of on the political side of it mm. rather than talking about the impact on the business. Um, but anyway, we're not going to talk about the, <laughs> the EU referendum uh, this week. Um, what else have we got? Alliance Trust, big news there. Yeah, really interesting one, this one. The RIT Capital Partners, which is... Um chaired by Lord Rothschild and I th- uh, was sort of formed to run Rothschild money, um, is making uh, uh, an offer to uh, take over Alliance Trust, which is, uh, would well, they're both amongst the largest uh, investment trusts around. So I think the combined entity would be uh, what about $5 billion. Um, and then, uh, you know, by some way, the largest investment trust in the UK. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's been an interesting time for Alliance because it's, you know, it has this huge history, but has had a very volatile um, couple of years with attacks from uh, Elliot, the, uh, the activist investors, and, and Catherine Garrett-Cox being ousted from the board and, and so forth. So it's been very up and down. But I was just reading, and I'm sure the PF team are going to go into this in detail, their own podcast tomorrow. But I was just reading that actually the share price performance of Alliance has improved quite a bit recently. So maybe Elliot's uh, actions are, you know, bearing some fruit. It's uh, so hard to tell with an investment mm. vehicle over such a short period of time, though, isn't it? Mm. Although there's stuff that they obviously have put in place around the the fee structure that yeah. um, obviously it looks like it will be better to suit the, um, the investors. But, um, yeah, they're very much picking on a wounded animal, aren't they here? They are indeed, and it would be interesting to see how receptive Elliot would be to uh, such an approach. I know they've got a couple of people on the board now. Uh, you would su- you would suggest that they're only at the beginning of what they hope is a transformation of the alliance business, and would they be happy to accept a takeover at this point? Who knows? Um, yeah, be careful what you wish for if you're mm. going to absolutely hammer the hammer the management. Yeah, um, you don't know exactly, and it, it did very much come out of the blue. But um, yeah, it could be a case for Rothschild of. Um, I saw there was, a, there was kind of a quote attributed to a past Rothschild round kind of investing when there's still blood in the streets, mm. you know, and this um, very much looks like a case of that figuratively. Yes. Um, okay, what else have we got in news then? Um, it well. seems to have been a shift in sentiment towards uh, in the resource market. So oil mm. past $50 a barrel. I think it's just below it currently as we discuss things on this podcast yeah i looked just before we came down it's it's 49 38 or something uh, a barrel at the moment so it did you know briefly pass this psychologically important 50 dollar a barrel level i remember a few years ago 100 dollars was the psychologically important level so you know we've got some way to go yet but yeah it, it's it's hovering around that that level and you know it has bounced strongly it was down to 30 dollars you know earlier this year so it, it has has bounced um strongly and some people are now call you know are now calling the bottom of the market and saying that it could be time to get in because there is uh you know the biggest gains are to be had in the early stages of a a recovery. We got an interesting news analysis piece um kind of two header from Alex Newman and Bradley Gerrard uh, this week and they they kind of address both sides of it one side being um the fact that there are technical factors there's supply constraints we mm. know that there's you know problems in, in Libya in terms of like linked to the political situation that's stopping oil coming out of that country pipeline attacks in Nigeria uh, wildfires in Canada so in terms of um the things that are driving the market there but also you have as you say some people calling the bottom of the market and as soon as that shift um 
in investor sentiment comes in from some of these quite big players mm. um, and they think, well, you know, the bad times are over, then you are going to start to see that shift as um, portfolios uh, rebalance. So potentially interesting, but I yeah. mean, we don't want to, we never have and we don't want to predict where we're going. No, exactly. And there is a caveat in the article as well um, that, you know, such, such as the advancement in technology, um, that some of the shale plays in the US, um, which have rapidly pulled out of the market as the as the oil price tanked uh, could come back in because they are profitable at around $50 a barrel so th- that 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 was the you know that was the big long-term driver that eventually produced this oversupply was the shale production a lot of that has been withdrawn from the markets but it but it can come back in quite quickly and, you saw, and did you see in terms of the producers, they're looking to diversify too. Saudi Arabia mm. um, taking a huge stake in Uber, yep. you know, really just trying to kind of get out of this market. I, I can't remember the figure of how much of a stake they've taken. I think they've got a vote on the board. They've got a seat on the board. It certainly cost them about three and a half billion dollars. Mm. So I'm, I'm not sure of the size of the stake. But so, interestingly enough, we, you know, this, is, this article is timed quite well because OPEC is actually meeting today in Vienna. They only meet twice a year generally. Um, today thursday the 2nd of june indeed um uh, and it's going to be it is always well watched but obviously the saudi um saudi has a new energy minister khalid al fali i think excuse the pronunciation um and he you know whereas the saudis have been quite truculent in recent times and said no no we're not going to cap production we you know we're going to let the market do what the market does. Then this new chap is is saying that that they should um, OPEC should encourage rebalancing within the market, especially if they're trying to list Saudi Aramco. Mm. They have a, a direct interest in kind of creating a reasonably more stable market for an oil stock. Yeah. Um, and you know that's under his purview, I think, as well. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, and some of the some of the uh, oil producing companies, the likes of Libya and and. Uh, um, Nigeria and Venezuela are really, really struggling. So there is obvious pressure from that side, but then the other side of the coin, the willy or, or the desire from Iran to continue mm. expanding its production. So you've, it, it's a very difficult balancing act. Well, we'll continue to cover that. Thanks mm. for that. Well, the other thing in terms of our longer news analysis piece, um, which Graham, I'm going to ask you about, although it's written by Mark Robinson, but I know you've had a read of it, yep. was looking at um, consolidation in the kind of big agriculture yeah. uh, sector um, with with Bayer's bid for Monsanto following um, Chem China's deal for Syngenta. Um, what do we think is kind of going on in this in this market? Yeah, and, and these are huge deals as well. Huge deals. The, you know, the, 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 the mooted deal from Bayer is $62 billion for, for Monsanto. Um, Party time if yeah, you're a kind I, of uh, investment banker. I mean, indeed. I mean, I th- it is part, it, you know, it's a long-term theme, feeding the world's population. Uh, you know, it's all we we've talked about it for many years um you know we are going to hit a crunch point where feeding the world's population it, it gets more and more difficult so to um, you know to 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 improve the yield of of agriculture new products need to be developed and the likes of Syngenta and Monsanto are at the forefront of that hence why they've become very large companies in their own right and also why other companies would like to buy them um and often these companies, for example, the Bayer deal, Bayer is more of a bulk chemicals business. It's looking at the specialist um, uh, work that uh, that Monsanto does. Um, so it, I think it is, you know, that's the general theme. People are looking to consolidate uh, what is a market that, that, that can only grow. 
Yeah, and and with the prices the way they are, the desire to get scale, then you have the more specific factors of China trying to secure mm. its future food supply for a huge and uh, growing population. And yes. so yeah, there's lots of stuff going on there. And apart from this piece, um, Mark also discussed uh, sector focus on this issue only um, a few weeks ago, mm. where actually we talked about uh, and we did a video. Um, I spoke with Mark uh, Robinson about the consolidation in this area so if you want more on that there's plenty more online and it is fascinating i had a quick chat with mark before i came came up here and um we talked about how monsanto and syngenta tried to get together a couple of years ago and i asked well why you know why aren't regulators going to regulators stop that one but why wouldn't they stop Bayer uh, or basf one of the other potential uh bidders for Monsanto, uh, and it is the, going back to that, the, the general chemical, bulk chemicals guys are looking at the specialists. If you try and get two specialists together, the regulators may come down on it because what the specialist um, agric businesses have done is created uh, almost a monopoly in seed production, but then they produce the chemicals that actually trigger those seeds as well. So it becomes a bit of a, a vertical... Uh, supply chain that people have to buy into and as we've seen in the telecoms market um regulators um european and global um find it more difficult to get involved in uh, vertically integrated consolidation in industries mm. so they they within a particular sector they will quite clearly put a bar on things that are going to limit the amount of competition but when it comes to yeah that kind of uh, taking on different businesses mm. at different levels um, it can be more difficult to police so yeah it might just be the nature of the deal Indeed. okay well th- thanks a lot time. for that yeah thanks Graham thanks a lot for that okay so Emma we're going to talk now about your feature that you've written on broken brokers which is yeah. quite difficult to say and this is uh, looking ahead of a big eu uh, directive that has actually been postponed but is still delayed but planning to be coming in in january 2018 um now what is going to be happening and how, how does it affect uh, stockbrokers well it's called mifid 2 and i mean it covers a whole range of things actually but but the one we've kind of concentrated on is um the the kind of new rules it seeks to introduce about um the payment for research analyst research um obviously that comes from brokers and basically what um ESMA wants to do, the European Securities and Markets Authority um, wants to do is separate or unbundle um, research fees from dealing commissions. Um, So just basically trying to remove any kind of conflict of interest, make sure that, you know, retail investors as well as institutional investors actually, um, you know, like big pension funds and stuff, um, that money they pay for research is actually going to benefit them and is being used on research that is ultimately going to benefit, you know, a fund, say, that they're investing in or investment strategies made on their behalf. So in the past, um, an investor would... um get research that was paid for so the fund manager uh, would uh, pay for research out of its own fees to its clients exactly and that's how it would pay the brokers to produce the research yeah whereas in future they're going to have to unbundle that fee so they're going to have to pay separately themselves for research which a lot of people think will actually limit the amount of research but it's not the only way that um, brokers can charge for research right they can charge the companies themselves to produce it yeah, I mean, so so again, what Esma wants to do is they want to um, say, well, you know, say I'm a big asset management, big asset manager, 
I can either pay for research directly or actually I can set up this ring fenced account. Um, but that that can't be used to fund internal research. Um, you know, that research has got to be um, used for, you know, say I'm buying research for on, on behalf of, you know, my investors in an emerging markets fund. I can't then use money from that kind of ring fenced account to go and buy research for investors in my I don't know, income fund or something like that. It's, it's trying to actually really remove the link between trading volumes and the value of a piece of research. That's what it's trying to do. Okay, and in terms of the impact that people think this will have, um, the most obvious one is that it reduces a, a source of revenue for brokers um, as managers perhaps try and do more of their research in-house or as they generally buy less research because now they have to be more open and ring fence, as you say, in terms of how they buy it. So that's one of the concerns. And some people think this might hit the smaller cap side of the market more. Yeah. Why is that? Well, the idea, like you said, is, and, and unsurprisingly, I haven't met many brokers that are in favour of uh, Mifid 2. But yeah, the idea is, is that, you know, if I'm, it's all right for, say, a company like Vodafone or something, which has, I think last time I looked, it was like 50 plus brokers covering it. So it's fine for them. But for a small or mid cap kind of company, the concern voiced by a lot of brokers is that, you know, Mifid 2 is going to re- remove the commercial incentive for I mean, unless you're a house broker, remove the commercial incentive for a lot of brokers to cover the stock. So less less brokers are going to be covering it, which will mean that ultimately, you know, the consensus figure that, you know, we all get off somewhere like Bloomberg or wherever or is reported in the media, that that will become, you know, made up of far fewer figures. You know, you could have a consensus made up of two forecasts or something so that's the worry and then people worry that's going to lead to less liquidity in the smaller mid-cap market less interest in those companies and then yeah less liquidity and we know that's particularly a popular area with our readers we just have to read the ic more i suppose well i mean you said it Ian, not me (laughs) okay i did i did say it um and i suppose there's many sides to this it's really interesting and one is i suppose it impacts on asset managers as well those asset managers that have more of that in-house research function um will be better off those that have relied on external research i mean better off um not financially but you know they'll be better set to deal with it those that have more external research reliance they might suffer. Do, yeah, I mean, it's, that's I suppose more of a more of a side issue from this. But it would be interesting to see how the asset. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's quite hard for both. There's also an issue also around um, uh, with these kind of ring fenced account. Ultimately, it's got to have. I mean, it's got to have someone's name on it. And I ask the question: How can you put everyone's name that is an inve- that is investing in this fund? You know. As in, because it's got to be traceable to a person that these clients are actually benefiting from this research. So how do you do that? I mean, in practice, you could just put the name of the fund down. But so there is the question for asset asset managers, is it going to become more onerous in terms of their whole compliance process and things like that? And the way that they're actually record keeping for, you know, where their where their fees for research are going. And I, yeah, uh, well, we'll have to see how that one plays out. Well, and, uh, yeah, and we've got, obviously got a couple of years yet before it comes in, but they'll be they'll be getting ready. It's interesting that we have a box within the piece, which is from a recent piece from Alex Newman talking about uh, research tree. Now, why is that kind of business relevant to this? Uh, 
are there ways that uh, will there be new products and new companies coming online uh, that will be, be able to provide something different? How well, yeah, think? this was actually set up by Rob Mundy, who's a former Librem analyst, actually. Um, Research Tree, it's, it's very recent, the past few months, I think it was set up. But basically, what that's doing is offering you can set up um, an online account, you can pay £40 a month, I think it is. And as a retail investor, I mean, there are actually other conditions at play in terms of the amount of trading you're doing and things. So it's not, you know, there, there are still conditions, but basically you can get access to um, research. Um, it is it is mainly, I would say it is mainly kind of the smaller to mid cap brokers, the research on there. There's not many of the big, big banks, but... So it may well, yeah, it's trying to open it up and you see how it fits within the market. And I'm sure our readers are very interested in it if they're not already using it. But at the same time, they are going to suffer too if there's a reduction in the kind of coverage from these analysts. Well, yeah, exactly. It gives you less option, you know, less companies, less providers on site. Okay, well, we'll be watching that with interest. The other kind of side of your um, piece, which is also very interesting with this kind of idea of buy, sell and hold recommendations. Now we get uh, anything that, that is that blunt um, obviously has flaws in it. We talk about this a lot in the team, but also we get inquiries from readers about, you know, what precisely we mean by these things. And it hasn't always been the way we've discussed it. But um, particularly with analysts, given their business relationships, um, it has been subject to quite a lot of criticism uh, that Tell us about this kind of recommendation side of the piece. Well, yeah, the kind of criticisms are, you know, what it, what is the motivation for an analyst to to sometimes kind of write maybe a buy recommendation? And, you know, it's not to say that analysts aren't, you know, are always trying to, you know, have an ulterior motive, not at all, but there's this kind of inherent conflict of interest. You know, I think we mentioned in the article that, one one former investment banker I spoke to actually said that, you know, he's done kind of buy recommendations where he knows that, you know, that, that kind of company might be a big client to another part of the business or there's there is a kind of inherent conflict of interest. Yeah. And that's something uh, you've quoted uh, Daniel Davies, yeah, so he also talking? wrote. Yeah, he, he also wrote, wrote in the piece. Yeah, an earlier piece actually for the FT, where he kind of went into a lot more detail about that. Yeah, and that that's really interesting. Actually, yeah, I think in this FT piece he wrote in August last year, he talked about a brown-nosed buy, which is a slightly horrible expression to describe when you would um, put a company on a, on a buy because you know it might suit your career or your business prospects um, of the wider uh, business to do so. He also talked about um, client-driven buys, um, by which means if you are a kind of broker and you have a um, asset management client, a big client, and they have a very strong position in a certain stock. Yeah, you might be. It might be difficult for you to then put a sell on a company that your kind of fund manager client has a strong buy. So there's lots of kind of things here. Um, there's lots of criticisms with it within it, um, and he, there's some funny stuff around. You know, if you're stuck on an underperforming buy tip, you just move the target price down and down. Just hope no one will notice. Um, but what's your feeling? Do you think these things are on the way out? Some people say, well, we don't. You shouldn't even bother looking at the buy seller hold. You should just take the analysis as you've written in this piece. Um, and analysts have great access that ordinary investors don't have. Do you think you should take their um, research that they've done and then just kind of ignore the recommendations? I think certainly, I mean, you should never just look at buy, sell, hold. And actually, as you've mentioned earlier, we as a magazine do buy, sell, hold recommendations. But the point is, you know, I think it's quite 
an accessible way into something, but you've got to read what's going on underneath. You know, you can't just look at the buy, sell, hold and take that. You've got to read the analysis, I would say for us and also for brokers and actually speaking to asset managers, they were saying, well, no, we don't just look at buy, sell, hold. Actually, they said what they found really crucial was kind of the forecast, the figures and maybe some of the you know, the arguments and stuff, obviously those big asset managers have time to get or, or, you know, spend hours and hours of meetings with management, which obviously a lot of retail investors don't do. So I think, yeah, for, for retail investors, you can't get away from the fact that these brokers do a lot of research. They do speak to management. But I think what we're saying is, you know, you just you just have to keep in mind some things, you know. No, definitely. And it Graham, I wonder, if, uh, wonder what your opinion is on this. I mean, for, say, the IC, a hold recommendation means different things depending on the investor that's kind of reading the piece, right? Mm-hmm. If you're someone that we've previously, if we've, if it was a previous full buy tip in our title, you've bought it, um, say, if you've taken um, the recommendation that we made at that point. You, if, when, we're, when we're then saying hold, we're saying hold on to the stock, don't sell it. We, perhaps we're saying hold it for the hold it for the dividend. Yep. For a new reader who's reading that piece for the first time, they might look at that and say, "Well, that means kind of hold off. It's not a good time to buy." Um, but for each recommendation, there's at least a couple of different ways of interpreting it based on the person. And you know, I suppose, yeah. What's your perspective on uh, how useful this is? This approach. Yeah, I mean, there are there are always nuances, as you say. You come to it from a different perspective. You see a hold for the first time. Uh, uh, or you may have been following it for some time, but we, we used to have a different level. We had about six or seven different levels, fairly priced and, and, and high enough, and we felt that we we were just muddying the waters even more with that. So to go down to the three clear buy, sell, or hold, we felt was uh, was, was was as as clear as we could be, um, as long as we didn't just understand the the history of the recommendations. But as you say, as you both said, I mean, it, it should be a starting point. Don't you know? People shouldn't. People often people will see the buy and then do their research into that stock to decide whether it is actually a buy for them. Because a buy for for one reason, which will be in our analysis, may not be the reason somebody's looking for a particular stock. They may not be looking for income at that point. They may be looking for growth. So it, it, there are always nuances in every uh, recommendation. And they may well have a different time horizon. I suppose, yeah, mm-hmm. I suppose the thing we don't have to deal with is the uh, you know the client relationships, and we yeah. don't have to deal with. Um, yeah, the other the other. Well, we side have inde- total independence, which is, uh, which is we're quite thing. lucky. Yeah. yeah, we definitely do. Mm. You can be assured. Well, thanks for that. And there's also a piece, of, a bit of the um, feature that we haven't discussed, which is where you kind of look at some of the prospects for the listed brokers, which themselves don't actually get that much coverage. In some cases, don't get any coverage because um, brokers don't want to cover other brokers. So that, I thought that was particularly helpful. A company like Numis which, you know, even with its size, really doesn't, you know, there's not very much written about it. So, yeah, it was great to hear, yeah, Emma. So we, uh, we do recommend that we just go and take a look at that. All right, well, we haven't got too much time left, but I just wanted to touch on a couple of the results that were happening this week. Um, Graham, there were a couple I wanted to pick out. One was um, Quindell. Mm. Um, so it's not no longer Watchstone. called Quindell. Yeah, it's now called Watchstone. And... If people were invested in Quindell, um, poor you, uh, but also if people kind of followed that story, this is a good update from Theron about how the management team are trying to kind of take it apart and put it back together. Um, yeah. yeah, but obviously it's still not out of the woods in terms of certain things that are going on 
No, I mean, it's an unenviable task, as, as Theron says, of repairing the damage that was done uh, at Quindell. I mean, uh, I think most of our listeners should know the backstory and some of them uh, will have painful memories of it. Huge restructuring going on there. Um, uh, in, uh, the, the company have gained some goodwill by returning the proceeds of the sale of uh, uh, of the professional services business. That was a, a decent return of cash there, and I think there's more to come possibly from that. And I do know that from my experience in the past of, of covering smaller companies, the guy, the new chairman um, of Watchstone, as they're now called, um, Richard Rose, is a good operator at that level. He's got a good record and aim, uh, and if anyone can sort of sort this company out, you know, he should be able to give it a good stab. It is still a company that is a bit of a jumble, mm. very different businesses. So on that kind of thing that we talk about sometimes in terms of understanding the overall uh, direction of a company, you know, their own um, rehabilitation clinics in Canada, they're big in that market. They've still got the insurance telematics business. They've still got um, a life insurance broker and they've also kind of have an- other analytics bits. So there are relationships between them. They're all loosely within related industries, but there are lots of different moving parts and different geographies in this business. Yeah, and, and that is still the legacy that they're battling against. Is this? The, the, there was a huge amount of acquisitive uh, um, moves by the previous management, nearly all for paper, um, that built this mess of a company, basically. So it remains to be seen whether, uh, and I, I, did, I didn't have, you know, obviously the conversations that Theron's had with the management, remains to be seen whether they will still consolidate and, and strip out some of these uh, less core businesses. Um, you know, it, as you say, there is there looks to be growth and interest in companies within it. Within it, just underlying growth and also the small matter of a serious fraud office investigation into the past accounting practices. Yeah. So yeah, still lots of problems there. Mm. Um, Theron is not particularly positive on them, uh, but yeah, it's an interesting analysis. And and I suppose just the other one I wanted to pick out, uh, which is interesting because it's quite difficult to call uh, the momentum of the stock really. But Halfords. Mm. Um, had its full year or year uh, year to first of April two thousand and sixteen results, um, and its bikes business was struggling uh, over the over the period. Yes, it's interesting that Harriet uh, actually describes it as the bicycle retailer because Halfords for many years was you know known for its auto parts and car radios and that sort of thing. But cycles has been the big growth engine of that business in the last few years on the back of. The huge success of the Olympic teams uh, and Bradley Wiggins and uh, uh, and Chris Freeman winning the Tour de France. Um, so yeah, it looks like there's been a wobble there. Is it weather related, or is it more fundamental? You would think with Halfords that they are quite, and I was talking about this with Harriet uh, the other day, that they're quite well diversified when it comes to the weather in the fact that if it is bad weather, people spend more on repairing their cars and getting new windscreen wipers and things like that. And if it's good weather, they spend more on their bikes. And obviously you have to repair bikes if they go wrong. But obviously um, they prefer better weather uh, in that sense um, because you've always got to get an MOT. But I suppose you don't always have to take your bike out on the road. And um, there are hopes that ahead of the Rio Olympics that, that they might be able to get another kind of spurt of interest in cycling. And they've got, um, who is yeah. it, Laura Trott involved? Exactly. Uh, and, you know, cycling has been the fastest growing sport in this country for many years. It's been huge. It know? takes over around, around the FT building, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, cycle super highways. There's now a cycle super highway, I think, that runs from basically near my house in my land all the way to work. Yep. It's ridiculous. Yeah. 
Okay. Interestingly enough, I, I did note that last, I think it was only last week, um, that Halfords announced a couple of little acquisitions, didn't they, in the sort of online side mm. of things, but in the cycling areas. And maybe that suggests that they, you know, they need to do a bit more online. Yeah, I, I was reading about this as well. I mean, they haven't got huge um, debt positions, so they t- definitely have the uh, the headroom to make acquisitions, and mm. maybe that's where the, the growth is going to come from. But anyway, yeah, it, it, they suffered a real wobble. Um, there were also so there is concerns out there about around consumer sentiment as well yeah. for things we've discussed, and it's not just weather related. Um, so yeah, an interesting one there. All right, well, there's there's uh, a few more results in there, not quite as many as there were the week before after the kind of mad rush that we had in May, quite unforeseen. Uh, but there's lots of other interesting pieces in there as well. So alongside Emma's feature, we've got Chris Dillo talking about the UK economy post the EU referendum, which we've done quite a good job of not talking about for once. And we've got um, Simon Thompson talking about MXC Capital, a traditional merchant bank. So that's quite interesting too. And there's plenty more besides. I think we have Philip Ryland's, or the latest instalment in his investment in 50 objects, one of which is a, a cigar but so go and read about what cigar but has to do with the world of investment if you don't already know well that's it four pounds 70 and all good news agents and you can get it online and please do sign up for the company's email now going out twice a week i hear it is brilliantly written and full of expert content thank you 